Welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast with Paul Fagan and Paul Becker. This podcast is for all the moms and dads out there who struggle with life's topics, especially related to family and finances. Now here's my dad, Paul Fagan. Hey, Paul. How you doing? Hello, Paul. How's it going today? Uh, doing well. Fantastic. Um, busy week. I was traveling this past week, so I got back yesterday, and now it's just catching up. I got a pile of mail on the desk and I have to go uh, run a bunch of errands today. So um, it was um, just going to be a busy weekend just trying to catch up on everything. I really don't have anything else new to report. Uh, Paul, how are you doing? Good. Very busy weekend. We were um, doing some of our financial analysis with my wife's plan. She works for a very large uh, school system and getting understanding her benefits at retirement and things and as we dug into it, we had a meeting with the retirement plan and it has all these columns in this file saying number of lost hours. I'm like, what do you mean lost hours? Like she's full time. How do you lose hours? So she actually took it what's called to her timekeeper. And everyone's like, I have no idea what that is. Well, somehow they're tracking it. So now we have years of data to try and fix up so she gets the proper credit for her plan uh, in many years when she does retire. But it's something interesting that happened financially. Oh, that's cool. I'm glad you were able to catch up with that and, and follow through and, and, and find it in a timely manner as opposed to waiting till the very end when you're closer to retirement. It's good to find out these types of things now and be informed. Uh, lesson out there for everybody. Yeah. So cool. Very cool. Well, today's podcast is Social Security and Medicare Financial Planning with Marianne Keith. We are going to talk with her about all things Social Security and and, and related to Medicare and financial planning. But first, let's talk about some news we saw this past week. The first news story was from MarketWatch. And actually, Paul, you you passed this on to me uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, but it's worth exploring. And it's a follow-up to a topic we did on the show around electric cars. The most common excuses for not buying an electric vehicle are mostly unfounded. Um, so I read through this article, um, and you know it talks about you know the myths such as limited range, fewer charging stations, uh, limited selection and utility, too expensive, and lack of information. And it debunks all those pieces. Um, the one thing that I took away from this, Paul, was a conversation I had with another buddy of mine who was considering an electric car uh, for him and his girlfriend. But the problem was they live in an apartment, and they don't have access to be able to charge the car at home. And that's why they didn't go for it. Um, you know, so I think there is part of the world or, or, or there's, a, there's a, you know, I guess I don't know how to put this, but there's, yeah, there's definitely people who would like to get electric cars, but they can't leave their cars over in a parking lot and a charging station and then walk to the car and get it. And, you know, so I think there's still, a little bit ways to go with some of these situations where for people that live in an apartment or live in a multifamily house who don't have access to proper charging, um, that could be an issue. But Paul, I, I know you're the resident expert on this. I, I don't have any real expertise in this space. I'm just relaying what I was told. So I'll let you kind of respond to that and let me know what you thought of the article. So the article is pretty spot on. You know, a lot of things have improved with the charging infrastructure. Um, depending upon the manufacturer of the vehicle and things like that, but it's getting much, much better. The As far as the multi-dwelling charging situation, uh, it, it is real. 
Um, I know some countries are putting in chargers on the blocks where you would have, you know, a parking meter. There are also charging stations. So that's really in its infancy. I don't think it's much of that happening here in the States. There is some happening, like there are some dedicated spots for charging that I've seen in, in States for doing that on the street. Um, as you know, my son has a place in Florida and in his parking garage, he's actually asked them if he could run a line from his panel to the spot, to his assigned parking spot to charge. And the condo association or uh, HOA is scratching their heads. I'm like, ah, how do we do this? Because they know this is just the first one, right? You know, five years from now, it'll be much more commonplace, especially when you're looking at gas pushing, depending on where you live in the country here in the U.S., for $5 a gallon. You know, it's uh, it's a lot. I feel like you're, yeah. you're looping me into the other episode that we want no, to do. No, no, no. Uh, well, we will ta- retape. We'll do another show on electric cars, give everyone an update. I, I just, I wasn't, I didn't want to go down a rabbit hole with that, but it was just something anecdotal that was real uh, for a buddy of mine. And, and that was the real reason why he did not go for it. So I just wanted to kind of point that out. And, and uh, even though charging stations are growing and the infrastructure is really coming into its own, um, there are star- still parts of, of our communities um, that, that don't support this properly, right? So um, that's just something we could leave for the next show. So, Great. Um, the next uh, story is from the Mooresville Tribune, uh, spooked by stock market volatility, three things to know. And it talks about three things, very short article. Um, so, it, you know, the, the gist is, you know, with everything going on in the world, if you're worried about the markets and we are seeing that level of volatility, Um, Volatility is actually normal, is the first thing they say. Uh, Dropping stock values can mean buying opportunities. That's the second. And the third is diversification can get you through a rough patch. Um, All very good points in the article that we've talked about here on Financial Dads, uh, where, you know, in terms of volatility is actually normal. Um, I think Dave Ramsey says, uh, you know, you don't you only get injured on a roller coaster if you jump off midway. Right. So if you if you take and you go for the ride, you'll be okay. Um, the third one, always a big thing for me, diversification. Um, we always talk about making sure that your your portfolio is diversified, and that could be by age. And you, you might be able to tolerate a little more risk depending on your age and your risk tolerance yourself. But diversification in the portfolio is very key. Um, and then dropping stock values can mean buying opportunities. I guess that's probably something I wouldn't take advantage of, but something to think about. Paul, what was your take on the story? I, I really think you summed up really well. But the only addition I would add, Paul, is if you listen to episode 106 with, with uh, Mindful Money with Jonathan, you know, I, I think that helps remind you and ground you in the volatility and things like that. So I, I think what he was talking about in that episode really ties to this article and the current fluctuations in the market. Very cool. Very cool. Well, with that... Uh, we'll jump into the podcast. We'd like to now welcome to the podcast, Marianne Keith. She's a financial advisor working with single, divorced, and widowed women specializing in holistic financial planning. With extensive expertise in Social Security and Medicare pertaining to financial planning, she has many secrets to share on these topics. Marianne, welcome to the show. Good morning, and thank you for having me, Paul and Paul. Yes, thank you very much. We've been wanting to do this topic for a very long time. Um, We've been talking about retirement. And and now, you know, in full transparency, I'm 51. Paul's 51. We're about the same age. 
Uh, yes, we are the same age. Um, and if you asked us five years ago, probably, we wouldn't be thinking much about this topic. But now it's becoming to the forefront. Um, and we have friends that are planning to retire at 55. Um, that's the goal. Um, my, my goal is not that. My goal is to make it to 62. Uh, that's my plan. Uh, and, and it's timely because I always tell people that's when I want to take Social Security. You might convince me otherwise not to take Social Security at that age after today's podcast. But that's been my plan um, has been to try to retire um, at 62 when I could first start taking that distribution. And that was kind of the, the watermark for me. My, my kids will be out of college on their own. And, and, and we will be at that point where we could see what we're going to do. And my wife, uh, thankful and grateful, she works for the federal government. Uh, she gets a pension. She gets the defined benefit. I don't, working in the commercial side, I don't get any defined benefit. So, so I'm, I'm, we're so happy to have you on the show. I'm looking to get a whole bunch of questions answered. But we'll start out with Marianne. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey? Sure. So I've had kind of an interesting non-standard journey. I actually have two degrees in music. I am a classically trained flutist. And, um, you know, when I was finished with school, I was doing my rounds on the audition circuit and always needed to have some kind of side hustle part-time job just to make sure those bills got paid. And, you know, one of my favorite part-time jobs was working for a financial advisor. So I actually started filing and answering the phones. And as the years went by, I realized that I wasn't enjoying freelancing as a musician as much. I wasn't getting meaningful work that I found to be satisfying. And the guy I worked for, um, still work for, Craig Beaton of Beaton Wealth Management, he, over the years, kind of gave me a career track and said, hey, you know, you don't have to be out gigging on the weekends if you get your Series 7 and your CFP and... I just really, over the years, found the work to be interesting, and it was a lot of late nights and weekends studying to catch up for not having any degrees in finance, but I found just all of the topics related to financial planning to be fascinating, and being able to work directly with clients and apply these principles to their lives and just to see what a difference it makes in their lives, I've found to be very satisfying and haven't looked back. I, I congratulate you on your journey uh, because I, I took the seven and 63 and that was miserable <laughs> to take it, study for it, get it, get it, you know, get prepared. I, I don't have the license anymore. I'm in technology. When I moved from one bank to another, they wouldn't quote, quote, unquote, park the license, which I get. Mm-hmm. I'm not in that side of the business, but I also know to get the CFP very challenging. So congratulations mm-hmm. on that. I think that's awesome. Um, you know, Paul, I'll let you jump in. Any questions? I know we have some questions. I'm dying yeah. to ask some questions, but do you want to kick off some of the questions? I, I, I do have one. I, I just thought up of one, um, Paul and Marianne. And that is, you know, with your background and doing those side hustles and, and trying to, you know, live check to check at that time, right? I, I would think it puts you in a, in a great position to help customers who are sort of in that same boat, not understanding it, especially there's a lot of underserved populations out there who don't understand what to do. Do you find it's easier to, to fit into those shoes and, and guide them a little differently? Absolutely. Um, you know, as a freelancer, you have to file your own Schedule C. And when you're first starting out, you don't necessarily have the funds to pay for your own CPA yet. So I had I had to learn how to do my own tax return. And I had to 
I was almost learning along with my clients, you know, as I would learn concepts, I would be able to teach, you know, teach my clients things. And um, just coming from the music background and having always taught music lessons, I, I found sort of my, my role as a financial advisor is to educate my clients. And um, I feel like that's, that's the best way to start just with education and awareness and, you know, having, having that background of living, living check to check, gig to gig, I do think really, really helped with that piece. Wonderful. So Paul, you want to go? Yeah, I want to really jump into the main topic, right? And I hope I described it correctly in in the podcast title. We're really Mm -hmm. focused on the social security. What are some of the misconceptions or mistakes that your clients make when it comes time for them to evaluate their social security decisions? Because like I said at the top of the podcast, I want to go at 62, right? Mm -hmm. And and I have uh, my uncle, for instance, is going to take it as late as possible, right? And and I had this conversation with somebody else that they want to take it as late as possible. Um, but then I look at um, family history, like in my family. I, I, I am clearly the, the lineage of my, of my father, and that whole side of the family doesn't last very long. I'll just put it that way. So, like, for me, I want to be able to enjoy a little bit. There's a big difference in my family tree between 62 and 70, and I don't know. And, and, and maybe I'm overthinking it, but my whole thought was take it as soon as you can and grab it. While it's there, but you know what? You're the expert on this, Marion. I'll let you have the floor. What are some of these misconceptions and mistakes that you could tell us about and tell our listeners about? And me. Sure, sure. So one of the one of the biggest mistakes people make is just underestimating the importance of taking time to review your own personal circumstances. We find a lot of people just look at it and say, "Oh, well, my." My parents, my relative, my neighbor, my friends, people at the water cooler at work took it at this age. So I guess, you know, it worked for them. I'll do, I'll do that too. So that's, that's mistake number one. It's not taking that time to, um, to take a look at it. So let's talk about um, age 62 and whether or not it's a mistake. You know, we see a lot of people saying, I want to take it at age 62, I don't want to leave any money on the table. I don't want the government getting any extra money. So a lot of people are still working at age 62. And what a lot of people don't know about is the Social Security earnings test. So after you get over $19,560 of income, the um, Social Security Administration is going to take back one for every $2 of your benefit. Mm -hmm. And then once you hit um, $51,960 of income, they take back one for every $3. So it's not always um, not always a good fit for people who are still working because it does get even worse from there, Paul and Paul. Um, the taxation of your benefit is something that people overlook. So there's a formula that Social Security has to calculate how much of your, your income is considered taxable. And it's something you kind of go over your accountant with your accountant to hammer out the numbers, but it's your adjusted gross income plus 50% of your social security benefits. And then you add back a few line items like non-taxable interest and such. But the bottom line is once you surpass certain thresholds, your social security benefit can be taxable up to 50 to 85% of that amount can get thrown into your taxable income. So it's important to give careful thought to what kind of income you're going to have coming in when you take that benefit. So I, 
I have two questions for you, Mary. Sure. And and I think that there were two things, and this literally this was top of mind. Number one, um, you talk about income. So if you have retirement income coming in from a pension or mm-hmm. or distributions from your four you know four hundred one k or IRA, does that count against that income? And number two, I was looking for a spreadsheet or some sort of online tool that would allow me to do the analysis with putting in the death age. Okay. And I couldn't find that. I don't, I, I mean, I, I searched and I couldn't find it, but those are kind of the two questions I had because I wanted to figure out if I did the math, if I take it at 62 or 67 and I live to mm-hmm. 70 or I live till 80, like, can I look at what that math looks like? And I wasn't able to find a tool to do that. And I was wondering if you had any suggestions around that. Sure. So we'll start with um, with the first question regarding income that counts towards towards your um, calculations for taxation and the earnings test and such. And you do have to count your 401k distributions. Um, many pensions count. You did mention that your wife works for the government. So just depending on her particular uh, status with the government, she may have some sort of social security offset, may not be eligible for full social security. So it's important that you review her social security statement very carefully. I do want to mention that once you hit full retirement age, so even if you started taking your social security at age 62 and you had these um, quote unquote garnishments upon your your social security payments through the earnings test. Once you hit age 67, they stop doing that and you do get, you do get your, your benefit back. The next question regarding a calculator tool. Um, one secret out there is a lot of us financial planners, we, we subscribe to calculator services and Mm -hmm. I'm subscribed to a very robust social security calculator where you can put in all different types of metrics. You can put in, the life expectancy, cost of living adjustments, um, rate of market returns. So if you have a financial planner or if you're interviewing financial planners, and this is a topic that's very important to you, you just want to make sure they have that software. And it's, 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 the software is just such a good conversation starter and a way to kick off the analysis. Um, if, if you'll entertain me, I have a good story about a client that we worked with recently, and um, we sort of took her through, do I take it now or do I take it later? Oh, we'd love a real good use case. Great, great. So we'll, of course, change the names and yes, circumstances. And absolutely. Facts. So we'll, we'll, call absolutely. Her, we'll call her Lisa. So okay, great. Lisa's husband passed away, um, sadly, in, in his 40s. And um, you know, Lisa was approaching her 60th birthday. So if you've been widowed, you are eligible to start your survivor benefits at age 60 which um, a very important distinction to know. So we had her call up to the social security office and get information on the amount of her survivor benefit and also the benefit on her own work record. And she came back to us with this information. I plugged it into the calculator. She had a good family history, so she expected to live a long time. And we ran the numbers as such. And the calculators tend to steer towards waiting. And we, we look beyond those facts. So Lisa works super part-time. She's not triggering the earnings test. I reached out to her CPA and confirmed that. And Lisa had been drawing income from her investment portfolio. And what we decided in the end is 
she, she, because she is eligible for survivor benefits, was able to turn on her survivor benefit and let her benefit off of her work record grow and increase. So we decided, Lisa, you're going to take your, your survivor benefits now. We're going to let your benefits grow until age 70, and we will take less stress off of your portfolio. We won't draw as much from your investment portfolio. And the great news with that decision is we've, you know, had up until now a good three, four years in the market, and she was able to participate more fully in the market with her investments by needing to withdraw less per year. Oh, that's wonderful. So to me, that's a success story where you don't you don't just go with the calculator. You start with the calculator, and then you really really dig in to someone's circumstances, risk tolerance, and whatnot to make the best decision. That's great because you emphasize the human side, right? The mm-hmm. numbers play a big part, but the human side is also playing in, right? Emotions, it's so important, and, and all those different pieces. So that's great, uh, Paul. I'll let you take the next question. I know yeah. there's so many good things I want to do. We might keep you here for three hours. No, we won't. But there's so many things <laughs> we that could we could think here about all day. all day, all day. I swear we could. But Paul, you, you go next because um, I'm fascinated by all these things and I'm jotting things down feverishly on my side. Yeah. So it, it, it's funny. Unrelated. I wasn't thinking about this podcast, but last night I was going over some of this stuff with my wife and I started doing my own calculator for this because I couldn't find one, Paul. Or maybe I didn't see the ones to subscribe to. So, yeah, I was doing, okay, if I take it early, how much extra cash do I get from that? Then divide that over the difference of life expectancy and say, okay, which is better? And, yes, it actually was coming out to wait, but it wasn't that much of a difference in my point of view. From a waiting, it was, you know, I think it was like $2,500 a year or something, depending on the, the ages and things like that. So there is really timely and really neat. Now, there are also different full retirement ages as to how much you can collect, correct? Like depending on correct. what, what it's, you know, I think 60, then you have 62, 65, and 67, depending on the year you were born. Is that true? Yeah. So it depends on the year you were born. So 60 is when you can take a survivor benefit. 62 is the earliest age you can you can take benefits if you're single, married, divorced. Um, 65 is just a popular age. That's okay. that was the previous retirement age, but now full retirement age in the eyes of Social Security is age 67 for anyone born in 1960 or later. If you were born before that, you can hop on ssa.gov and just look at the chart to see exactly what your full retirement age is. And um, the big difference between 62 and 70 is you take a 30% reduction in your benefit if you start at 62. And then the difference between 67 and 70 is if you can wait from 67 to 70, you get a 24% increase. And then at age 70, you don't get any additional, additional credits towards your benefit. That's, that's when the increases stop. Hmm, great. Uh, I, I had something else and I just forgot it, Paul. So if you got something good. Oh, go I, I have a one and I was, I, it's not in the, in the show notes. As everyone knows, we've talked about show notes, but this one popped into my head. Marianne, I'd love to hear your opinion on there's a lot of talk over the decades that Social Security is going to go away. Mm-hmm. That, that and, is and a great you, question. Yeah, and since you're so close to it, I'd love to hear a more informed opinion than mine on this topic. 
Well, I, I forgot to get my crystal ball out this morning. <laughs> so uh, my, my opinion is um, no politician is going to want to stand up and say, hey, we're out of money. We're going to give you a pay cut because no one, regardless of your politics, is going to reelect someone who's responsible for making them go broke. So I do think that our, our politicians will do something. I My guess is that it will involve um, paying more taxes. And who will pay those taxes remains to be seen. But I do think they will, they will do something because we all know that all of our politicians, regardless of what side of the aisle they're on, are, are interested in being reelected. So... I, I do think it's a, it's something that they will address, and they probably won't address it until the eleventh hour. I'm guessing. Understood. True. True. Yeah, I, I kind of tend to agree with you. I can't imagine them actually getting rid of it, even if it does. Even if there is no money, they'll figure out something. They'll just print more money again, cause inflation mm-hmm. and everything else, right? So, I, I guess. You know, from from your point of view, I know you've done a lot with, you know, widowed and divorced. You know, how is that really that different from, you know, married couples? Like what, what different financial planning advice or anything would you have around that? So so there it, it's still pretty, pretty similar with with working with widowed and divorced women. You do have some additional nuances, just for example, for women who have lost their spouse at a young age, or men, they um, lose their right to a survivor benefit if they remarry before age 60. And there are some other caveats for people who have been divorced. So for married couples, you don't have to worry about that part necessarily. And um, with married couples, what I like for them is that they have two different benefits to play from, play with. So they've got They've got two different people, two different potential life expectancies. So you're able to hedge your bet a little bit. We, we see with, with married couples that what they'll do sometimes um, is one person will take it early, one person will take it late. And that's just, I feel like, a good, a good way to hedge. And someone who's single for whatever reason they're single, they don't have that option. They just have that, that one, one decision to make. So I, I, sorry, I have another one, Paul, off script again here, but, you know, forgetting about life expectancy, say they're comparable, okay, and mm-hmm. they're comparable age, because you, you can't, there's so many variations, right? But is, is it better sometimes to go with the one who had more income and take that earlier, or the opposite, the one who maybe had less income? Because I, I think that it plays into how much you get from Social Security, correct? Yes, yes. So I tend to lean, um, just depending on how much income the client is bringing in, and this is a perfect segue into a Medicare-related topic, I'll, I'll tend to lean, um, if the client is between 65 and 70, towards the person that has the lower income, because you have to be very careful about how much income you are drawing once you become eligible for Medicare at 65. Your part, D, your part B and D premiums are based on your income, your modified adjusted gross. And they use a um, program called IRMA, um, Income-Related Monthly Adjustment Amount. And there are brackets um, on the Medicare website, and we're very mindful of those. We work with our clients' CPAs every year just to try to keep people from going up a bracket. But your, your premiums can increase significantly, and you have control over that. 
between the ages of 65 and you know 72 when your RMDs start if you have a lot of different buckets of qualified and non-qualified dollars to to choose from. So we we when we're working with people regardless of their marital status, we are just very careful about how much income we have them drawing between those years because those those hikes in Medicare premiums can be substantial, especially for a couple because everything's multiplied times two. Yeah. So you threw out a bunch of acronyms there. I want to step back on that because some, some people may not understand Part B, Part D, and RMD. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you just give us 30 seconds on, on that, if you don't mind. Of course. So let's start at the beginning of the alphabet, Part A. So part A is what you're all paying into through your through your payroll payroll deduction. That's um, essentially your hospital insurance. And um, once you sign up for Medicare Part A, you're not paying for it anymore unless unless you're still actively working. For Part B, that is something that has a separate premium attached to it, and that covers your your doctor's office visits just to keep it simple. Okay. And then part D is your prescription coverage. Oh, D for drug. Got it. Yeah, D for drug. I'm slow. So, okay. So D for drug. <laughs> Got it. And then you also said, um, I think I'm pretty sure I know what you mean, but the RMD. Yes, yes, the RMD. And I appreciate you taking time to go over the acronyms because that's one of the challenges of my industry is we have an acronym for everything and um, always good to pull back and explain the acronyms. So the RMD is your required minimum distribution. And once you reach age 72, used to be 70 and a half, some of your listeners may remember that, but once you reach age 72, you need to start taking annual withdrawals from your retirement accounts. Um, there's some provisions if you're still working, you can you can skirt some of them, but you need to start taking money every year. The first one you can you can defer. You could take two distributions when you're age 73, but what you have to remember is that once you turn on that RMD, your adjusted gross income is going up. And if you've saved uh, for retirement, there's a lot of talk about all these 401k millionaires out there now who've saved well, they're going to have pretty hefty RMDs once they reach age 72. Yeah. So they're going to have all this money and then your income goes up because of it and you get taxed on it, right? That's right. That's right. And that changes your tax bracket. So in theory, you could almost be in the same tax bracket or even potentially higher. Then when you're That's working, right. I mean, good problem to have. Don't get me wrong, but so uh, how do they? I'm sorry, Paul. I'm on a roll here. No, you know, that's fine. Go right <laughs> ahead. I how do it. they compute the RMD? Like, is it what's the formula for saying okay, you must take out this percentage every year? So the IRS has different tables, but let's just stick with the uniform table that applies to most. So they have a table. And they have a divisor based on your age. And it's all public information. You can go on the IRS website and take a look. Or even easier, there are so many free calculators online where you could just plug in some hypothetical numbers. But you're basically taking your account balance at the end of the year. And you take the divisor that is attached to your age. And you compute that and out comes your RMD. The RMD tables were updated at the beginning of this year to factor in a longer life expectancy, which I think is great. You know, it helps helps people 
stretch their money out a little bit longer. But just as a general rule of thumb, I tell people to expect, you know, somewhere between four to five percent for their first year. But that percentage goes up, goes up every year. But your account balance also goes down from the withdrawals plus market performance. So there's it's, it's a moving target every year, but generally you can expect that required minimum distribution to increase every year. Cool. Yeah, I think that all this talk about the Social Security, I do have a, a thousand more questions on Social Security, but I do want to switch gears just a little bit because I know you're besides Social Security, you, you cover all kinds of types of financial planning. And the one thing that That's was right. key to me was um, financial planning when it came to widows, um, financial planning when it comes to divorce. And, and I guess in particular women, I guess it could be men or women, but maybe I know this is a big question to kind of unpack, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. How do you go about financial planning for someone who's recently divorced or someone who's recently widowed? How do you start those steps? And what are the long-term type of plans? You know, is it different from planning for married couples? So it's it's very different from planning for married couples just because when someone's just lost their spouse, they're devastated and they're lost, they're confused, they don't know what to do. I find myself working with a lot of women who had a very traditional marriage where their husband managed the finances. They didn't, don't have a very high financial literacy. They weren't involved in investments or paying of the bills. So they need a lot of hands-on help at the beginning just to establish a budget to help settle their estate. Um, you know, there are just all these phone calls that need to be made, and they really need someone to sort of be their, their quarterback and keep track of, okay, have I taken care of life insurance proceeds? Have I claimed the 401k, all those things. And um, what I found is when when your spouse has passed away and your spouse was a do-it-yourselfer, there's a little bit of guilt for the surviving spouse because they think, oh, you know, my, my spouse used to do all the planning by themselves and said I should never pay for a financial planner. And one big piece of advice I have to anyone in this situation is don't be afraid to reach out for help. I, I think that, you know, your spouse cared for you and loved you and would have wanted you to do whatever you needed just to make sure that you're able to set yourself up for financial success. So I, I do think it's very important if the surviving spouse didn't have a lot of experience handling their money that they, they reach out to someone, someone for help. Yeah, I think for me, when my father passed, I think I was that quarterback. I think mm -hmm. my mother would agree. Um, you know, we, we got through kind of the, the, the few days of, of, of grief and, and everything and, and kind of had to go through all that whirlwind. But then kind of I remember going to her apartment, sitting down with a legal pad and just starting to write out stuff, mm -hmm. right, and just understand where things are understand what the next steps are, you know, in my cursory search online, we looked at, you know, calling this for social security and the life insurance and, and, and stopping certain benefits and this and that, and, and just sort of just chugging through it. I think the big thing that I took care of when that all took place was the paperwork, the afterlife paperwork, the wills, the durable proxy of attorney, all these different things, uh, medic, medical uh, proxies, all that kind of things were not in place 
for my father. And, and we didn't need them, which was good, but it also highlighted the fact that, hey, Ma, you need those. So one of the things on that list was to go to, you know, to an attorney and really start drilling and making those things reality and going through that. So I, I won't go too deep into it, but I agree with you. You need somebody in your corner that's going to help. And I think just organically, I was there to kind of help through those pieces. Um, so it, it was helpful for her. Um, so I think she she benefited from me being there. But you're right. Some people don't have that, right? They're alone mm -hmm. and their kids are across the country and they don't know what's going on. And, and it becomes, it could be frightening. It could be a, t a very terrifying experience and for the widow. And also at a certain point, the, you know, the mom or dad who's been widowed, they, they might not necessarily want to depend on their kids every day for helping them with their finances. And once that, once that estate is settled, there's so much more, you know, oftentimes they want to move house. They want to talk about what their life is going to look like, um, travel, all sorts of lifestyle goals. So it doesn't just stop after the estate is settled. Um, I, I really enjoy being there for my clients and just helping them in their new chapter of life and making sure that they're, they're finding a way to bring joy back into it. Yeah. And, and I'm going to maybe go down this other path, the other D word, and that's divorce. Yes. Right? So that's, that, that is, um, I don't know, that might be a bit different from the widow situation, the divorce situation. So you have this use case where the couple breaks up and you have that same situation where maybe the, the husband was the breadwinner and the wife was not responsible for the bills or vice versa. That happens mm -hmm. too. But, but I guess in general, what is your advice for, for people in financial planning when it comes to divorce? Well, let's back up a step Okay. Um, to before you get divorced. So one thing you need to consider is if, you know, you're out there thinking about getting divorced is if you want to be able to collect social security off of your ex-spouse's benefit, if you're in a situation where your spouse makes significantly more than you, then your marriage has to have lasted more than 10 years. So that's a situation where if you're getting close to that mark and, you know, you feel safe, you know, you might just want to, you know, turn on some Wilson Phillips real loud and hold on <laughs> for one more day and um, see if you can make it past that 10-year 10 10 year mark just so that you're able to collect. Um, one caveat, though, is if you, if you do remarry later, you know, the Social Security Administration is going to settle up and you know, move you back down to your own benefit. But after, after you're divorced, um, obviously, there's all the readjustment of budget and um, just, you know, learning how to live on that one income, updating your documents with your estate planner. You know, I'm a big proponent of attending my clients' meetings with their estate planner just to make sure that we've covered everything from a financial planning side. Same with a CPA. It's good to meet with a CPA after you've been divorced. And I really enjoy attending those meetings too with my clients just to see how that's going to affect your tax bracket. And then regarding the Social Security, you know, no one's going to call you from the Social Security office saying, hey, your, your ex filed for Social Security early. You can, you can start claiming off of his benefit now. So one, one thing when you're divorced and you're looking to collect off of your spouse's benefit is you should just have a little annual reminder on your calendar to give Social Security a call once a year. Um, 
because I, I, I don't think you can depend on your ex-spouse to call you either when they start collecting. So that's just a little, a little helpful hint just to make that annual call to Social Security to see if by any chance they've started, started collecting. So with that, instead of the annual phone call, because actually we covered that um, mm -hmm. with the IRS recently on one of the other podcasts, <laughs> how, how busy they are, um, is there an online tool? Because I know uh, one thing I found really neat is I created my account within the Social Security uh, website and I can download, you know, my history of employment and the benefits and it's, it's actually fairly decent and helpful. So can a spouse connect in and see if they're former spouse or whatever? Uh, so that's has? something I actually don't know. I don't know how much information you can get on um, survivor and spousal benefits online. And um, just, a, just a funny story, I've been locked out of my social security account for a few years now, and I haven't been able to get back on, but I'm told that there are improvements to the website, and the statements have also been upgraded in the past year or so just to show what you would get at age 62, age 67, and age 70, so you can make a more informed decision. But um, in my experience in working with with clients is they really prefer to get a phone appointment with Social Security and we get together a long list of questions for them to ask when they're on the phone and sometimes it's just better to have someone on the phone to answer those questions and um, be able to ask for a supervisor if you get kind of a complicated question. But by all means, if, if you're able to crack the code and get onto that website to do a little research before you fo your phone call, I think that's a great idea. Mm, neat. So well, one thing we started talking about, and that's how much you get depending on different age. I, I get, I'm trying to think of how to word my question, and it's around, well, what if I... What if I'm Paul, maybe not Paul, because he said not 60, not 55, but say I want to retire at 55, okay? Now, and if I have, my income would obviously drop significantly, and maybe I have something on the side or, or just a little part-time thing. I don't know what. How does that impact what I can withdraw from Social Security? Is when I go on there and I get the number, is that assuming I'm working till X year? And is that different than polling from a certain year? You know, that's a really great point, Paul, and something that I've seen um, our nation's leading Social Security experts kind of criticize about these numbers that are quoted on the website. They assume, you know, they're calculated assuming that you're still going to be working. So if you haven't um, earned enough to effectively kind of max out your Social Security benefit, it is possible that if you have you know, seven to 10 years of working at a much lower income that it could, it could lower your benefits. So that's, that's a really great thing to pay attention to if you're going to retire early. Interesting. So you can actually max out your social security benefit? Yes. I, I don't have the figures in front of me, but the maximum benefit, um, somewhere in the, the $3,000 range. So you do get to a point where where it doesn't matter how much more you make because you've already already maxed it out. And so it's three thousand dollars a month, I assume. R right. Roughly, roughly. Yeah, roughly. I don't. Yeah. I don't have the exact figure. No, no, no. That, that, that's that's fine. Now, 
I'm sorry, Paul. I have still more questions. <laughs> no, keep going. As long as, long is as great, Marianne guys. is, is happy to answer them, I want to be cognizant of her time. But, yeah, this is sure. great. Well, like, like I said, we just let the, the questions go and, and keep going. So go ahead, Paul. So, you know, we, we all have friends who have had different challenges over the years. Um, you know, some might have an adult child who has really not been able to join society for maybe a mental illness so you know how does that play for that that child really long term you know because obviously parents aren't here forever and the child has a long way to go is there something that can be done for that situ that type of situation i know there are like 1700 different variables or something within social security but mm -hmm. how, how does one approach something that that's a difficult conversation and obviously a, a planning thing but is there something that can be done in that type of thing? Of course, of course. So it's, it's great that you've brought up adult children, and we can also touch on minor children as well. But when you have a child that has a disability, it's very important that you work with, with a planner that specializes in special needs and that you've worked with an attorney just to go over all of the things you need to know when you have um, a disabled or special needs child, just to make sure that you're keeping them eligible for Medicaid and, you know, that varies by state, all the different caveats. So one, it's important to retain a professional team. And two, it's, it's important to check with the Social Security Administration because they do have a lot of benefits available when you have a disabled child or, if, you know, if you're claiming an adult disabled child as a dependent on your taxes, it's important to make sure you educate yourself on the different options to make sure that you're claiming, claiming what you need from Social Security, what you're entitled to. Um, one other topic that, that I'm seeing more and more of with people having children later in life or having children from a subsequent marriage is if you are drawing Social Security and you still have a minor child, your child actually um, until age 18 or high school graduation can collect a benefit. And if your child is under 16, there's an additional elevated benefit. So that's another piece of the puzzle where if it applies to you, that you, you definitely need to think about whether or not it's worth it to take, take your Social Security early, even if you're working, because you could be leaving these additional benefits for your minor child, your, your disabled child on, on the table. Wow. So, so, so many options. And uh, I'm mm -hmm. glad we're doing this episode because quite frankly, I think a lot of people don't. And uh, again, there's a lot of you know, underserved communities that have no clue what's available to them. So, yeah, and that's why I recommend that phone call to social security, just, just to get someone to pull up your record and tell you, tell you what your options are now what your options are later. They're not going to advise you on this phone call, but it, it's an amazing way to gather some facts so that you can go back and review them carefully yourself or with your professional team if you're fortunate to have one. Mm, wonderful. And then another one, you know, you're an adult, say you're in your, I don't know, say later 50s or so, and you get hurt. So first you go and you're at work, you're on short term, then you maybe go long term disability type thing. And then, you know, at some point it's like, I'm, you know, they may not really be able to go back full time anymore. 
you know, and now they're in this quandary of, well, what do I do? And, and I don't think a lot of people look at social security as an option. And I guess that's my question. Is there some sort of option for, for someone in that type of situation? There is a social security disability option, and I I think a lot of people hesitate to apply because it's so daunting. Um, It's Hmm. a lot of paperwork, and when you're in the unfortunate situation of being disabled, doing paperwork, my goodness, you know, what, what a burden. But it's one of those things, if you can get someone close to you to help you, guide you through the process, I'm, I'm told it's very complicated. Um, it's got more stringent requirements than, you know, your standard disability policy through an employer, but it, it's worth it, worth a shot just to see if you can get that, get that income stream from social security disability and try to take some of the, some of the burden off from not being able to work. They're very cool. And, and I think that we could keep going, but we'll let you go, Marianne. We'd love to have you back. I'm sure there's other I would, topics I would we can... love to have, have another, another session. There's yeah. so much more we could talk about. Yeah, this is great. And I'm going to wrap up. We usually do a summary recap. I'll let you have the last word. I think for me, and really personally, I'm going to review my wife's Social Security statement because I don't know what the impact is for her pension versus her social security. Um, and, and I think that, you know, this, this whole marriage strategy is an interesting one as well in terms of figuring out the timing of social security. Cause I never thought about that. I kind of thought it, I thought of it just as myself, right. But it would benefit my wife if I took it later potentially, right. Or, or you know, whatever. So I think mm-hmm. that's something to kind of think about. So those were the kind of the two big things I took away from the conversation that I have homework on. So this is great. Uh, Paul, why don't you go? Yeah, I, I think I, I learned a lot in this episode. So I, I thank you for that. I think the big thing for our listeners is, you know, when you're doing the budgeting, when you're doing the planning, work with your spouse. So everyone has at least some sort of understanding, you know, you brought up financial literacy there and it's, it's near and dear to Paul's and my heart. Because that, that's actually why we're doing this, right? A lot of people don't understand things that we're trying to help in our little microcosm of the world here as to what's happening. So I really think that's really important for people to to sit down and, and go over it. Even though it may not be fun, it's they're tough conversations sometimes and to plan it out and look it and look it through. So thank you for highlighting that and, and bringing that out. Happy Very to cool. be here, happy to share. Yeah, and Mary, let, let's you you can have the last word. Any kind of takeaways? We'll we'll post your information on our on our Facebook page, our social media. But any last advice and any and how can people get in touch with you? Of course. So my advice is to educate yourself. Um, there's no such thing as educating yourself too much, and just remember that regardless of how much money you have, regardless of how much money you make, you are important, and it's very important that you take your decisions related to social security seriously. And just, I can't stress enough the education. And if you're able, hire yourself a professional team, financial planner, CPA, estate planner to help guide you through these decisions in life. And I can be reached uh, through our website for Beaton Wealth Management. And we are at www.beatonwealth.com. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Paul and Marianne, I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today, and I'm personally looking forward to the next one. Thanks, everyone, for downloading our podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at financialdads at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook. Just go to financialdads.com. 
So with that, this is Paul and Paul reminding you, managing finances can be stressful, but that's why the financial dads are here to help you plan for success. Have a good one, everybody. Be well, and thank you. 